want to take our Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I would call your attention to the parallel passage in Mark chapter 8, verses 13 through 21. won't be reading that tonight because of my uh, ailing voice. I'll try to spare myself words. You can read that at your leisure. But Matthew 16 and verses 5 through 12 will be our text for this evening. <coughs> Jesus is taking his disciples and they're going back and forth uh, across the Sea of Galilee for one reason or another known to God. And that's the reference to the other side here in verse 5. Now let's pick up the narrative there, verses 5 through 12, the word of the Lord. Now when his, Jesus' disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we've taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you did not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thus far we read in this chapter in which there is revealed to us an identity crisis. Normally we think of someone who has an identity crisis as himself not knowing who he is or his significance or her significance this is the world we live in, isn't it? People don't know who they are, their reason, their purpose for existence. But this identity crisis is the most important, and it has to deal with people misidentifying Jesus. In fact, it's a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus, and which is recorded in Matthew. He's the fulfillment of all the prophets. He is the Messiah. He's been showing this by his miracles, by his great wisdom, as fulfilled uh, a fulfillment, the fulfillment of all the prophets and all they said about the Messiah. Now, people are getting him wrong. And in fact, at this time, we have the Jewish delegation, perhaps, an official a delegation from Jerusalem of Pharisees and Sadducees who, as we saw last time, came tempting Jesus and asking if he would show them a sign from heaven. He'd just done all these miracles, and they wouldn't believe that. They were tempting him to try to show a sign, and if they could only catch him not being able to perform a sign somehow messing up, then they would have him, and they would prove that he was the fake that they, they believed he was. So they were full of unbelief, 
and they were tempting him. They were from the evil one. And Jesus abrades them and shows that they are hypocrites. The hypocrites they are were very good at weather forecasting, but are completely mistaken about their Messiah forecasting. They are this wicked and adulterous generation, as we heard last time, that seeks something more than the Messiah who's right in their very presence. They are misidentifying Jesus. They are showing they do not understand the scriptures or also the sign of Jonah that had been written down of uh, the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus at this time in our text, warns the disciples just about that. He warns them about this evil and adulterous generation and their leaven, which he calls the doctrine of uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warns them off about it, and he is warning them so that they might not take in that leaven into their bread into their understanding of himself, into their doctrine. And so there's a sharp warning. They need to take heed lest they follow the way of those blind leaders of the blind. Now the question comes up, and it did to my mind in preparing last sermon and also this one. What is this identity crisis that that people had then have to do with us today? Oh, beloved, I think it has everything to do with us today, it being the Word of God, but also because it's so apparent that the signs of the times that the people could not discern back then are very similar today. The signs of the times, the end times that were upon the people at that time, are now also still upon us today but it has to do with the second coming of Jesus. And lo and behold, though Jesus has fulfilled the reality of Jonah, he has suffered and died. He is buried in the belly of the whale, as it were, in the earth, but he's risen again. Though that has happened, and because that's happened, all the more people have an identity crisis. That is, they are not finding their identity in Jesus because they misidentify him. They don't know who Jesus is, and they don't want to know. Well, Jesus wants people to know who he is. And just as then, he asked the disciples, what were people thinking about me? What did they think of me? And then he asked them, and he said, what do you think of me? So Jesus would ask that question of us today as we hear. Because you see, there's the miracle of sermon making and preaching and hearing that's going to go on tonight. Nothing fancy and flashy, but everything spiritual and mighty and powerful, the working of faith. And the question is being asked to you and to me, what do you think of Jesus? How do you identify him? How do you find your identity? Of which generation are you, the wicked and adulterous one, or the ones who are the people of God? May God bless us. We live in these latter days. So may we find in this text the truth of the lie always. There's something about the lie that Jesus is bringing out here, and it's that it's leaven, which we have to know 
for all times. And then, bewaring of this lie and this leaven in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation, a religious wicked and adulterous generation. And then finally, the blessedness of the called. Because the Bible reminds us that we need to be reminded of the blessedness of the called. The majority in the world and in the church may find another Jesus in which they can find a certain identity and unity and calling. But the people of God, the remnant according to the election of grace, find their identity only in Jesus, the Jesus of the cross, the empty tomb, and the Jesus who's coming again. We need to know we are blessed, even though we are mocked and ridiculed and exposed to all kinds of harassment and even death itself for holding on just to Jesus. So what's this truth of the lie that Jesus is talking about here? And of course, I'm not talking about the fact or some kind of strange fact that the truth is actually the lie or the lie is actually the truth. But what's the truth about the lie? Jesus warns against the leaven of bread, which was the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that doctrine had just been revealed when Jesus had exposed them as part of the wicked and adulterous generation that missed the sign of his death and resurrection. This leads us to understand that the wicked and adulterous generation believe the lie, which is what men and women and societies and churches and mosques and ever have always held to, the lie. The lie is basically a denial of the word of God. That's what the lie is. That's the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of the humanists, of all of the liars there ever has been. You see, they follow in the footsteps of Satan, who questioned Adam and Eve, and he said, Yea, hath God said, and there was the beginning of the lie on the earth, And Eve believed him, and Adam then believed Eve and believed the devil, that really what God says and said in the garden is irrelevant. It's not vital for my importance. It's not really true for me always or as radically as God intended it to be. The word of God. Does he really have a word for us? This was the question that was put in the minds of Adam and Eve, and it is in our mind as well. The great tempter who tempts through scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees tempts us to buy into the truth that there is no truth. There is no one word from heaven, and there is especially no one word, Jesus Children always understand this. The word that we want to hear in all of life, from the Bible, in general revelation, from your parents, from the church, in the catechism, in the schooling, and as we entertain ourselves sometimes, a little bit of that is okay. The word we want to hear, the message is, there is a God. 
And he is the God and Father of Jesus, and he's our Father for Jesus' sake. The gospel word. Well, it's all about Jesus. This is the lie, the doctrine of the lie called leaven, the leaven of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It's the lie. God says the truth is, I speak my son. I am revealed to you in my eternal son. He's God. I speak to you in this son, become a man and a savior. He's the Messiah, the savior from sin. The truth is that he's of God. And that's what all these miracles have been showing, that Jesus is of God. They attest to the truth that he's saying about himself in so many words. He is the Savior. He's the truth of the scriptures. And Jesus himself would point people to that, like the men on the road to Emmaus. These are they that testify of me. They testify of my suffering and my rising again, the glory that follows. And this is all the prophets and the promises have ever pointed to. Jesus is always the word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. And there's this symbol of his death and resurrection uh, strikingly, amazingly, in the disobedient prophets Jonah's um, demise, as it were, his death, as it were, in the belly of the whale, and then his being spat up on the ground and compelled to go to Nineveh, though he preached their repentance unwillingly, not thinking that God would save such Assyrians who were such inveterate enemies of the people of God. But see, God would show his grace word in that prophet. And of course, in Jesus, he does this par excellence. He's the word of grace. He's the word that we need. The word that comes out of this world into our sinful world and fallen world that says God loves sinners. And This is a lie that, therefore, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were holding on to, a false doctrine of denial of Jesus. And it's striking, as we saw last time, we need to say this again, because this is what's happening today. It's striking that such religionists as these Pharisees and Sadducees would unite because ordinarily they'd be long ways away from each other. They wouldn't go to the monthly ministeriums of Grand Rapids or Comstock Park as men of like mind, even though they were together on the Sanhedrin, the leader of the 70 and the religious council of Jerusalem. Yet they couldn't stand each other uh, on a doctrinal level. The Pharisees were more rigid. They were the legalists. They held to the word of God. They believed in heaven. They believed in the soul and the afterlife. But the the Sadducees were the liberals. They denied the prophets. They held just to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They denied the miracles and the existence of souls and the resurrection of the body. So now they come together. And what joins them is they both have a problem with Jesus. And that's the same thing of religionists today who are off, uh, um, who have departed from the word of God. They come together in this. Strange theological bedfellows, they come together in this. They hate Jesus. They can't stand the, the real Jesus. They have a problem with his identity. 
And just the way God is saying something in him, just as they had a problem with God in the garden, saying of all these things you can eat, all these fruits, but not this one, reminding them that he is God. So they bring false doctrine. That's what Jesus is warning the disciples about. They're, they're all interested in, about bread and so on. They're wondering about this, this earthly bread, how they're going to be fed. And Jesus is saying, oh, think of what I was just saying there on the other side of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. Think. Think about the spiritual lesson. It's like people going to church And they come away and they're talking about something that was maybe there in the sermon, but what was not the gospel heart of the message. And it's like they miss it. Don't ever do that, beloved. They missed the fact that Jesus was exposing these leaders as errorists and exposing them as enemies of him. That's why he left them then. He forsook them. We read in verse 4, and he departed. He was leaving them to be hardened in their their attempt to tempt him, and their constant refusal to believe in him, and their seeking even his death on the cross. They denied Jesus. They denied all the truth, therefore, in him. They denied the truth of the sin that he came to save sinners from, of the grace of God that they needed, of the righteousness of God which was not of themselves which they needed to have, of the nakedness that they were showing, and of the righteous robes of righteousness of Christ himself that had to be theirs if they would be right with God. They were denying the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and they were promoting man They were, in fact, in all of this, like leaven. And that's the second point of this first point I want to make. The liars were denying the truth as it isn't Jesus, and they were like leaven. And leaven is yeast, as in making bread. I don't know if you kids are learning how to bake and Moms and sometimes dads, if we're let in the kitchen, we're taught how to make some things. And you need yeast if you're going to bake uh, often. And just a little bit, go a long way to going into the mixture of the dough, the flour, the eggs, the water, the sugar, whatever you put in it. And it will permeate the whole. That's what yeast does or leaven here. And it will cause the whole to take on a certain character. It will rise, in fact. It will make dough, mere dough, into bread and something edible. And it's unseen. When you mix it in, you, you can't tell that it's there, but it's effective. And you can tell the results of it as it ferments and as it starts to smell and spreads. And just like the doctrines is what Jesus is saying. There's a metaphor here, used only here in this way in the Scripture. Eleven of the scribes and the Pharisees, and in Mark chapter 8, the parallel passage. Describing doctrine, Jesus is, as a subtle and yet 
powerful and controlling influence upon people, souls, homes, and churches. That's what he's saying their false doctrine is. The Dutch used to say that principles work through. Beginsel and Verkendor. Principles work through. That's when people were principled. People don't care about principles anymore. Well, then they don't understand the truth of the lie of leaven. Principles are like powers. They affect the whole thing. If you believe one way, believe another way, it will affect your whole life, your whole perspective. It will give you the lie will, a lying, false worldview for one thing. So if you believe not Jesus, you'll look at the world as if God hasn't spoken into it. Or maybe as if you're the Messiah and you're the first and last word of God and wisdom dies with you. That's what proud people do. But the lie is like leaven. Beware of it, Jesus says. Beware of it. It's unseen, all but unseen, but the teaching of Pharisees and Sadducees called leaven, this denial of Christ is a hatred of truth. It cannot exist alongside of the truth wherever there's this leaven. It takes over the whole. Whatever you're making, therefore, in your soul and of your life, whatever you're teaching your children, if there's a little lie that you're teaching them, wittingly or not, somehow maybe the little leaven gets into the lump of your education. Whatever you're teaching in church, if there's a little leaven in the teaching and the elders don't catch it, or the minister doesn't even know about it, isn't corrected by someone who has some wisdom in the congregation, look out, beware. It spreads, and it will spread, and it will take over your mind, will false doctrine. It will devastate, in fact, because there's no such thing as a little lie that's not a destructive lie. There's no such thing as a gospel that can coexist with something that's not the gospel. Christ, you see, is identified as God as the complete Savior. So you add a little leaven of works, and it's a lot of grace, but just a little bit. There's something not only that we have to do, that's responsibility, that's true, but there's something on which salvation depends. We start to teach that, then we have a problem. Because that's the lie. Nothing depends on us. Everything depends on God. That's the truth of grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. It's all back to Phariseeism and adding to the gospel uh, the things and the works of men. But the lie is devastating for its permeation of the whole in all of our life, in all of our doctrine, in our churches, and so on, we must beware. Beware means look out for. It means that we have to understand the lie. It means we have to see it for what it is. It means we have to have discernment. We have to learn our catechism. 
We have to learn it well and memorize in the hard work of getting into our minds what is not naturally there. You see, every one of us loves leaven by nature. We love a little bit of God, which is to have no God. We love a little bit of truth, which is to have no truth. We love a lot of ourselves in the making. In colleges and other universities that go by the name of Christian are very good at this. By professors who have compromised, a lot of the lie comes in little by little, leaven by leaven, spoonful by spoonful, for susceptible minds in the making, and minds that are being deformed. Well, beloved, what's this word for us? I want to point out to you, as I hinted at last time, that there are Pharisees and Sadducees today, religious leaders in the churches, which are an evil and adulterous generation. And there's a danger of the church of Christ that wants to be true, of being led astray by these leaders, these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are good representatives of the church of today. The church of today is a church divided and there's a spectrum. There's the right wing, maybe. That would be the Pharisees who add to the word or take a little bit away from it. But it's about man. And it's about righteousness and self-righteousness that we can earn with God. And then there's the Sadducees on the left, and those would be the liberals. And in fact, beloved, though it was the case that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were looking for a sign then, and the sign had not yet been fulfilled, and Jesus dying and is rising again, they still exist, and in the same way, even though the fulfillment of the sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus has occurred. In the signs of the times then, which they couldn't discern, that now was the, be- the dawning of the kingdom of heaven, now was the judgment come upon the unbelieving Israel nation, and now was the salvation of the whole world of God's elect. Those signs, though they are fulfilled in Jesus, are still upon us, the signs of the times of the end of time, when Jesus who's died and Jesus who's risen, and because he's died and because he's risen, is coming again. The signs of the same thing, the judgment of God and the salvation of God, the coming of the mediator soon, clouds of glory. So you have these religious forces then joining up And they were miles apart except for Jesus who joined them. They were together in their rejection of Jesus. And you have it today. And it's all the worse because Jesus has sealed in his blood all that those signs pointed to. All the miracles were about. He's fulfilled in his being the living word of God. All that Jonah ever was and all of the Old Testament sacrifice testified of. All the worse, I say, because now reality has come 
in all its fullness of the salvation and judgments and holiness and mercies of the living God. How dare these people come, the liberals on the left and the Pharisees, traditionalists maybe you'd call them, on the right, mangling the word of God, ignoring the word of God and different truths of the word of God, all so that they might pass off as true that Jesus is not really Messiah, that there's another Messiah to come, that there's someone else beside just the Jesus of the scripture that's important, and some other signs of victory than the victory of the cross. 1 Corinthians, to which I alluded last time in chapter 1, has Paul speaking after Jesus died and rose of the Jews who were still seeking a sign. They were requesting a sign. 1 Corinthians about 22, 1 verse 22. And he has the Greeks seeking after wisdom. And he joins them together in distinction from the people of God who, who trust in Christ alone, crucified and risen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. But then there's these other people. And today, beloved, it's really the same. There's these Jewish sort of people, these people of the Bible, maybe, and Christian Jews kind of thing. They're mixture of Christianity and Judaism, and they're, they're seeking a sign. And, and then there's the ones who are acting like Greeks, the Sadducees of the day. They can't get off the ground. They don't believe in a soul. They don't believe in the resurrection. The liberals of the day in the church are like those who have said, well, nuts to the Bible. We'll come up with our own wisdom about Jesus and our own philosophy. And they join together. And what's a sign? Reverend Dick keeps speaking of a sign that the church today seems to be seeking. Oh, beloved, the sign, the signs today are signs that so-called Christians hope to find of the victory of Christ. Signs of the victory of Christ that indicate that Jesus has gone to the grave. They'll believe that. And that he rose and that all the power and authority is given to him. They want signs of that. And the signs that are being sought, even in conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian communities, are signs that are not worthy of the truth as it is in Jesus because there's signs that have to deal with fruit that's looked for in society that's not of the cross, like this, the conversion of culture. That's what people are looking for today in Reformed and Presbyterianism. Be careful. That's seeking a sign of Jesus that is not something that he died for. Jesus died not to avert some of the consequences of sin, 
but to demolish sin and its guilt and to save souls, soul by soul. So the Great Commission is go into all the world and disciple the nations. Make Christians of the people of God wherever they are. Go find them. Preach to them and God will call his own through the preaching. Do that. It's not to change superficially either the government or the poems that people write. It's not to change it so that we come to a place where we can say, yes, Western civilization is now recovered. It was lost. But now, because Jesus is risen, we have this Western civilization that's recovered. This culture that now says there is a God, and Jesus is claiming the culture for himself as if, beloved, claiming souls and the church were not enough. It's almost as if Christ has a bride in the church and then concubines wherever you go in the culture. That's what's being taught. They're looking for signs that the church is doing right, maybe by bringing the law to the government, all the Old Testament law. This is being taught in Reformed churches. That's wrong. Don't get me wrong. The truth ought to be brought to bear in all spheres of life. And government officials ought to be told of their calling, for sure. But to try to convert the government as if it is a place uh, that's going to be sanctified by the law, impossible. The law never sanctified. The law never justified, it never sanctified. The church is the place where law and gospel make a difference in soul. We are salt and light. We testify in this world that there is a God over all the world. We can run for office and so on. But after all, beloved, Christianity is not something that's won at the polls. It is not. Christianity is won by Jesus who's overcome the world. And now he's claiming his own from among the people of God. It's almost as if I get a headache thinking about this. It's almost as if we want either to go back to a Jewish theocracy and say, let's say America has to be some place that's such a holy nation that only the Christian God is taught. Well, beloved, then you'd have to change the Constitution. Never, America was never a Christian nation. Those are a kind of heritage, for sure. It's either that, people want to do that, or <clears throat> they want somehow to go back to the Crusades. You know what they were in the Middle Ages? People actually thought that we are to fight, the Christian fight, with a sword. And so people thought, kings thought, that we should go to the Holy Land and Jerusalem and reclaim it from the Turks and the Muslims and so on. And that was fighting the good fight of faith. And this would be a sign if we reclaimed this for Christ that Jesus really reigns. And all of this is about, beloved, 
an understanding of the gospel that's wrong. It's leavened by a not some view of one kingdom or two kingdoms. That's, that's a red herring. The issue is, what's the nature of the victory of the cross? What is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? What's the real kingdom? Never mind counting whether there's one, two, or 20 kingdoms. There's only one, beloved. God overall in power and this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of grace. But here's the question. What is the victory of the cross all about? What is it? Well, my Bible teaches that it's the victory of the blood. It's the victory of forgiveness of sins. It's the victory of sanctification of a soul. It's the victory of the progress in the life of children of God who are just sinful, in holiness, who become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It's the victory of God gathering to his church one by one, family by family, and there be faithful preaching and teaching and the keys of the kingdom exercised and hear this kingdom. And beloved, it's not to be sought in something you can see. Now let me repeat that. The kingdom and its fruits and the glories of Jesus, therefore, are not to be sought in something you can see. And why can I say that with authority? And I say it with authority. Because Jesus himself says, the kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. And in another place, it comes not with observation. You cannot see the coming of the kingdom. Just as invisible as leaven is, is the coming of the kingdom. So don't look for it then. Jesus abrades the disciples here, talking about bread. And he says, don't do that. You, oh, you of little faith. Literally, oh, you of little faiths. You don't understand. It's not about something you see. And even when I rise again and have the glories of heaven. It's not about something that's fantastic and that is an earth shaker and everybody's impressed by it as if this was the latest thing and we're just going to go after this, Jesus. Beloved, the more the kingdom comes, the less people understand it and the more they don't want it. Understand that? So you have strange bedfellows Conservative, Reformed, Presbyterian joining forces with Sadducees, liberals like Roman Catholics and allying themselves in the culture wars against abortion, against pornography and all of these things that are evils. And we can stand and we should stand against them. But they're making this the main thing. It's not the main thing. And when you're allying yourself with a strange bedfellow, that ought to warn you, maybe, maybe you're taking in something of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Since when were people of faith to combine, to have an unequal yoke with those who are heretics, no matter what you're trying to do? Be careful. The leaven... Well, the Pharisees is not only a message, but it's a method. 
It's a method of God's preferred choice. It's the preaching of the gospel, the foolishness of preaching, God says. It's the hearing of the gospel and then the doing. So it's even the case that Pharisees and Sadducees and the church side in all kinds of theological stripes have joined with humanists and Greeks of the day so that there's theology over here and then there's neology, something new on the other side, but we're united. And it's really manology. And it sounds a lot like what the Bible says is the Antichrist. Be careful, be careful. Anything that makes waves, anything that becomes popular, anything that unites all kinds of people regardless of doctrine, beware of that and the leaven that's behind it. You're saying, oh, Reverend Dick, he's not preaching for anything political and so on. Wrong. For individuals, you're in this world, you're salt and light, so are we, the church. We have things to say here. We have the word of God to inform all of life here. We would not hide in the sand, hide our heads in the sand against all the cultural aberrations. We would not refuse to speak against homosexual and lesbian behavior and sodomite marriages and abortion and all the evils of society. We do that. Our main message is the evil of sin in all of us and the goodness of God in the grace of the gospel and the only hope for the society called God's elect, the church, and anyone who is desperately seeking something, the only hope is in Jesus. Beware, with the Bible open, know the truth of the kingdom of heaven, of the Jesus who's the king, of the victory. Know it and believe it and know the blessedness of that. The Bible reminds us that we need to know the blessing of God. The Jews are requesting a sign. The Greeks are seeking after wisdom. And they together, the Christian Jewish dreamers and the Greeks on the left side of Christianity are denying the word of God outright. They're together against Jesus, but we, for Jesus, preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, and also the Christians who are acting like Jews, he's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, Jesus, who's the wisdom from heaven, is foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Paul goes on to say, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the wisdom, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Understand that? Understand that and know this. There's great blessedness in being able to discern the leaven of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the humanists 
also of the 21st century. Even though you're mocked and you're said to be those self-righteous, bigoted, hypocrites, heads in their sands, not caring about this world people. Just like they did about Jesus. And you'll be tempted to have a little leaven. Dominie, would you put a little leaven in your sermon next time? I didn't quite sit right with me. It was offensive. And, and you, you said that I'm a sinner there. And you, and you said that a lot of people whom I know are, are, are they're, they're taking in the leaven. But they're, they're reformed and, and they're Presbyterian and they're brothers in Christ. How can you say that? Oh, beloved, Jesus made the waves, you see. And for us not to be contentious, but to be wave makers at the same time, we're true peacemakers, and it has to be. Because the truth is offensive, and many are falling for the lie. And their loaf, and their sermons, and their, their Christian activism is showing it. Be careful. To be truly active as Christians is to be active on the basis of truth. All the truth and the whole truth. It's to be those who claim to understand the righteousness of heaven, the nature of the coming of the kingdom. It's to be those who say, even if I lose my life, I'm going to follow Jesus. And even if we lose members, and even if we lose the favor of Whoever, the mega churches, we're going to follow Jesus and be a faithful church. Blessed are the called. And you see your calling, brethren, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's why. Here's why God chooses the, the ones who are of no account. Here's God, why God sets up a little preacher with a big, big word in a big pulpit and... We don't make much impact in the world, we think. Here's why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That no church should glory in the presence of the glorious God. Because God will not share the glory. And Christ is to be identified by us and not misidentified as the glorious Lord of glory. And his victory is sure. You can know that, beloved, not by wondering about the logistics and how we're going to survive. That's what the disciples were doing. But by believing and understanding, understanding the truth of the lie, the leaven of the Pharisees, and especially the truth of the truth, so wonderful to taste, so sweet, so wholesome and nourishing, 
Beloved, love that truth. Give God the glory, only God the glory. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us now. We, we stammer a few things, and yet we believe that you've spoken. You are the God who would speak to us and make us those who are more like Jesus, more that church of the apple of his eye, more the people of God who would be faithful in a godless day, and even when the generation of Christendom is a wicked and perverse and adulterous generation that's left the moorings of the word and gospel of God. Oh, we claim not to be the only ones, Lord. We are not proud either, but we are yours, and we want, Lord, that you would get the glory. And we pray, Father, as we call ourselves to, and you call ourselves to holiness and to faith, to understanding and to commitment, that we ourselves might join with those who are truly committed just to Jesus and who love the theology of the blood of the cross and would avoid and avert and never take in not one bit of leaven worth of the theology of the glory of man. Hear our prayers, Lord. Bless us with steadfastness and courage this week. For Jesus' sake, amen.